Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the award-winning Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me. Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and book recommendation episodes, as well as insider information on all of the newest releases that I personally endorse and on the publishing industry in my behind-the-scenes series. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Have you read a book recently that really resonated with you and makes you want to read a book more like it? If so, submit a read-alike request to me through my Google form located in today's show notes and tell me why you loved it, and I will suggest some similar reads on a future Tuesday episode. If you are interested in reading some great books before they publish, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon group to access additional content, including early reads and pre-pub author chats and bonus episodes. For March, we are reading Fifth Avenue Glamour Girl by Renee Rosen. And for April, my selection is The Comeback Summer by writing duo Allie Brady. I just added Banyan Moon by Tao Tai for May and The Bones of the Story by Carol Goodman for June. The link to join is in the show notes. Today, I am chatting with Deanna Rayburn about a sinister revenge. Deanna is the New York Times bestselling and Edgar Award-nominated author of the Veronica Speedwell Mysteries, the Lady Julia Gray series, and several standalone novels, including Killers of a Certain Age. She lives in Virginia with her family. I hope you enjoy our conversation. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, Deanna. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm so glad you're here. This is our third time to get to chat, and that makes me so happy because I just love your books. I was actually trying to figure out how many times we visited with each other. So we're three. That's great. (laughs) I think it's three because I think this is the second Veronica Speedwell, and then we did Killers of a Certain Age, but maybe we did another Veronica Speedwell. I'm going to have to go back and look now. Okay, see, now now I can be totally wrong. I don't know. I was taking your word for it, Cindy. <laughs> well, either way, I'm thrilled you're back. Before we start talking about A Sinister Revenge, though, I'd love to quickly talk about Killers of a Certain Age because that book has done so well. I absolutely loved it. We chatted in the fall. That interview has done beautifully. But the book is everywhere. Have you been so, so pleased at how well it's been received? I have been absolutely over the moon. This book has gotten so much love. It's it's my my beautiful little juggernaut and I just could not be happier that people have have seemed to enjoy it so much and it it had this wonderful spike in sales 
in December. And so all I can picture is people buying it for their grandmother, their aunt, their sister-in-law, their teacher. I hope it's getting passed around because I, I think that it just, it's, for me, it was such a fun book to write. And what I keep hearing from readers is that it's a really fun book to read. And so I love the idea of folks sharing that. Well, I think it makes a great gift. And I seasonally will do all of these book talks. So usually I do them in November, early December, and then again, April, May for summer. And it was on my list every talk I did. And so many people bought it because I think it makes a great gift. I mean, it's such a fun book to gift to people. And it's just such a fun book to read. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Like I said, it was so much fun to write. And it was also the hardest book I've ever written. And so to see it kind of paying off on the back end where, you know, readers are getting their hands on it and they're loving it and they're, you know, passing it around and giving it as gifts. I just, I could not be more delighted. And it was really resonating with a wide range of people, younger, older, kind of everybody. Yeah. I think, you know, women have in general just gotten angrier over the last couple of years as rights have eroded. And I think that that we have sort of, you know, floating around in the zeitgeist is some righteous female rage. And I think the idea that you can pick up a book and, and you know, vicariously see people getting their, their comeuppance, you know, at the hands of these unlikely kind of heroines is empowering to some folks. Absolutely. And I hate to ask this question, but I have to know, is there going to be another one? <laughs> All I can say is that discussions are happening and fingers crossed, I would love to spend more time with these characters. Okay, good. Because I would love to spend more time with them too. And like I said, I hate to ask, but (laughs) I'm dying to read about them again. (laughs) Okay. So now to a sinister revenge. And I feel like I am just gushing like crazy because I told you before we started recording, this is my favorite of the Veronica books as well. So I'm like, okay, I love to killers of a certain age. Now I love to sinister revenge. But there was just so much to the story, and I just couldn't read it quick enough. I thought it was really, really well done. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know, it's, there's always a challenge when you are this far into a series, because this is the eighth Veronica book. I'm writing book nine now, which is why when you and I first started talking before you were recording, I was like, what book are we even discussing? I I can't keep track anymore. But there's always kind of a, a challenge to keeping it fresh and to you know, having conflicts that are going to engage readers and and having these arcs of relationships that are going to be meaningful and keeping people apart and bringing them together and doing it in ways that feel organic as opposed to contrived and in ways that might make you want to thump the characters a little bit, but not so much that you'll stop reading. And and so that's always, there. there's just a host of challenges that come with maintaining a series as long as this one has gone on. And I love writing the Veronica books. So the the idea that with the eighth one, I could give you one that makes you happy and is your favorite, like that's a thrill to me. So I'm, I'm very excited by that. I think it's hard to do that far into a series. And so I always enjoy them. I mean, they're so much fun, but I really enjoyed the subject matter. I liked the dinosaurs. I liked that you wove in contemporaries like Darwin. Nellie Bly, you know, there were just a variety of things that wove into the story that I really liked, but I really, really liked that Veronica was wrong-footed the whole time. And I don't want to have any spoilers, (laughs) but I just thought it was really great. And she kept saying, I'm not upset. I'm not mad. This is all fine. But you knew she was just stewing. And I I just really enjoyed having her behave that way. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that I enjoy most about spending time with the character of Veronica is that she is so confident. And sometimes that confidence is completely misplaced. 
And it doesn't slow her down. Like the girl gets knocked down and gets back up again over and over and over. And she does learn from her mistakes, but she never seems to shy away from just charging in and taking control of whatever situation she finds herself in. She's not deterred by anything, including being wrong footed. You know, she will, she will eventually own up to it. Through the course of, of an adventure where she's maybe not kind of got the real lay of the land, she's not necessarily a reliable narrator, you know, because she's not being honest with herself. She can't be honest as she's recording this adventure. If she's absolutely infuriated by something, but she's trying to take the high road, she may very well say, nope, not mad, not mad at all. I'm fine. And we all know Veronica's not fine. And it's not that she's really an unreliable narrator because the reader knows that she doesn't have the correct lay of the land. It's more like she herself is sort of got blinders on and is like, I'm just going to plow ahead. I'm not going to let any of this bother me. My confidence is in place and everything will fall into place. And eventually she realizes, okay, maybe I'm going to have to do something a little different. And I just love that because I don't really recall seeing that in Veronica before. Or maybe it's been long enough that I don't remember it, but I don't remember her really having to kind of struggle with those issues in the past. I think that's something that we're seeing more of in Veronica as the series goes on. I think it's probably always been there since A Curious Beginning, but it's not something that maybe a reader would have been as aware of because I don't think I brought it to the fore as much. I think now that readers know Veronica, now that she is more secure In some areas, it's easier to show her vulnerabilities and her mistakes in other areas. I think that's a good way to look at it. So, well, I I really enjoyed it. And the other thing I really enjoyed was Stoker's Brothers. And I know, is it Tiberius? (laughs) Is that how you say it? Tiberius, yes. Okay, so Tiberius has been in previous stories, but I don't really remember Meriwether, but I love that they both had big roles in this one. Meriwether has uh, been in one book before. He had a very, very tiny cameo. It was literally a small scene, and that was it. That's the only time we've ever seen Mary on stage, as it were. And so the opportunity to write, I, I had wanted to do a book set at the Templeton Vane family estate for a while. I thought that would be fun. And I knew that I wanted to bring Meriwether into one of the books. It's kind of challenging because with Stoker being one of four sons, I love to have these supporting characters who are family come in, but you can't put every one of them in every book or readers would just get overwhelmed. And so I like to kind of dole them out. And Tiberius has had the lion's share of attention, mostly because readers love him so much. I have an editor who loved him so much. And I would keep getting notes, more Tiberius, more Tiberius. (laughs) That's hilarious. And he's so much fun to write. I didn't create Tiberius until book two. And as I created him, I thought, oh God, what have I done? Because I knew that this was going to be a character who was just going to be so fun to write that I was going to want to use him a lot. There's a a fourth brother, Rupert, who makes an appearance in the very first book. Um, and he is, you know, kind of the the most conventional of the brothers. He's he's brother number two, and he's very establishment. But Tiberius, as the eldest and as the heir, I just kind of let him off the chain, and he does whatever he wants. And now we get a peek at Meriwether, who is the baby of the family, and who is, you know, for his sins, he's a clergyman. Whether that's a good fit for him or not is up for debate. But he, he's kind of been forced into this role of 
you know, taking on the dog collar because that's what younger sons of aristocrats a lot of times did because it was a very genteel way of kind of, you know, making your way in the world when everybody else has, you know, a a genteel career, what are you going to do with yourself? So a lot of younger sons went into the church and that was sort of the, uh, the path that Mary found himself on. Well, I loved the addition of him. I thought he was very entertaining and I always loved Tiberius. So it was nice to see them in this one. I do agree. You would not want each of them in every story, but that's what makes it special when they show up in this one. Well, and I love playing with the dynamic because Stoker has such drama in his relationships with his brothers. Like they're so fraught with emotion. And, you know, he and Tiberius like get into to slanging matches where they are not above coming to fisticuffs, even as grown men. Tiberius is 40 and still not above, you know, they'll they'll get into kind of this bear wrestling mode that they go into. And Meriwether is is, you know, bless him. He's kind of this wayward child who doesn't completely know his place in the world. But then we've we've also got like I said, Rupert is the is the kind of the more conventional establishment figure. And so they each have a very different dynamic with Stoker, and they each fulfill a different role in his life, which for a while they didn't, because when we first meet Stoker in book one, he's been estranged from them for a number of years. And so over the course of the books, largely because of Veronica's influence, we start to see how they are creeping their way back in to Stoker's life as he's starting to let some of his defenses down. And part of that is because, you know, Veronica is this irrepressible character and she's fostering these relationships because she and Tiberius are thick as thieves. She adores Tiberius with good reason. And, you know, she has, she's establishing good relationships with the other brothers too. And I think at some point Stoker just finds like it's easier just to go along with it. And he realizes it's nice to have those relationships, even though he fights against it. The other character in this story that I just loved was Nanny, who I guess raised Stoker and his brothers, but she was just a hoot, and her relationship or lack thereof with Veronica just completely made me laugh. Oh, God, I love Nanny so much. I, you know, Stoker is such, um, he's such an imposing character in a lot of ways. He intimidates a lot of people he meets. He's kind of physically a little bit larger than life. He has this really strong energy. And all I could think was how much fun it would be to have a character who thoroughly puts him in his place just by walking up to him and, you know, kind of grabbing him by the ear. That she's this little tiny woman who's maybe half his size, but has absolutely 100% been the boss of him since childhood because she used to bathe him. You know, she's the person who made sure he ate all of his, his mushy peas and drank his milk. And I, I just, I loved the visual of him being bossed around by this little tiny cranky woman who absolutely hates Veronica. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the part that, you know, Veronica just can't stand it. And Nanny is like, I love Stoker and this person is not nearly good enough. And so she just cannot stand Veronica. And those, that dynamic, that relationship is very entertaining. Well, I, and I love the idea too, that there are some people Veronica is just never going to win over. And Nanny is definitely one of those people. I also feel like she would have hated Tiberius's late wife. She, she probably hates Rupert's wife. Anybody who looks sideways at Meriwether is going to get the stink eye. Um, Nanny just doesn't want anybody near her boys. Yes. She's going to protect them at all costs. So there's not going to be anybody that's good enough. Absolutely. But she's a great character. (laughs) 
She's a menace, but I love her. (laughs) She is a menace, but I do love her as well. So you must have had to do a lot of research. I'm assuming you didn't know all these dinosaur details, but maybe you did. But it was so interesting and having a meal inside this dinosaur model. And I saw in your author note that that had actually happened inside an iguanodon sometime in the 1800s. But that was all just so much fun, clever, unique, really brought to life well. Was it so much fun to write all of that? And then let's talk first about your research. You know, it was, author brains are are these weird little magpie nests, right? We collect just odd, shiny facts and we tuck them away and we never know when we're going to use them. And I remember I have fangirled an awful lot about the Regency romances that Amanda Quick wrote in the 1990s. And there was one in particular that I absolutely loved called Ravished. And her female character in that one is a fossil hunter. And the whole, that's kind of the whole premise of this is this girl is after a fossil. She will stop at nothing. And I was so fascinated by the idea that this Regency character would be after, you know, bones that I, I, I was going to say I did a little digging, but that is the worst joke ever. (laughs) And it was completely unintentional. I did a little research and found out that this was, of course, a huge thing at the time, largely due to a woman by the name of Mary Anning who was a, a fossil hunter on a part of the English coast that's known as the Jurassic Coast, because it's got so many fossil deposits. And Mary Anning is the reason that we have the little tongue twister about she sells seashells by the seashore, because that's literally what she did. She would go climb around the cliffs with her little pickaxe, and she would unearth ammonites and all sorts of other fossils, and then she would sell them to collectors, because Natural history was a huge business in the 19th century. You know, uh, science was really, really asking all sorts of fascinating questions about the world around us. There were all kinds of explorations and all kinds of discoveries. And the role of, of, you know, what role does science play in religion? What role does religion play in science? You know, there were all these philosophical questions. And one of the things that people did is they collected a lot of natural history specimens. And some people were just really drawn to these fossils. And so Mary Anning made a a good living for herself by doing this. And so that was one of the things that I just kind of squirreled away. And then uh, a number of years ago, I ran across a mention of this Iguanodon dinner, which was a dinner party that was actually held in a model of an Iguanodon. And there are beautiful sketches that you can see in the illustrated newspapers of the time of these very, you know, kind of formally, austerely dressed gentleman sitting down eating a very formal dinner inside a dinosaur. Like it's completely ridiculous, but I loved it because it was so over the top. And so that was another little thing that I tucked away and said, okay, at some point I'm absolutely going to use that. And when I started thinking about what sort of book I would set at Sherboys, which is the Templeton Vane family estate, I knew I had said it in this part of the world, you know, Mary Anning's Jurassic Coast. And I was like, oh, okay, wait a minute. Things are starting to come together. And I had my, you know, so I had my setting, I had my fossils, I had this iguanodon dinner. And so then it just kind of all beautifully came together in a way that I I thought was just so much fun to write. I love historical fiction that actually teaches you a little bit about the time period. To me, that's the greatest read. You're swept away. You love a story, but you learn something. And I think that's what I like so much about this story. And I like that you wove in Charles Darwin and Nellie Bly and just kind of little tidbits from the time period. And I thought that just made it a great read. Yeah. I mean, I I love to do just enough to set the scene for the reader. 
and maybe kind of communicate um, one little odd factor to that isn't general knowledge, you know, that the average person might not know or might not have paused to think about. And because I love it when writers do that and I'm reading it, I always think that's really cool to, you know, to come up with something that I didn't know before. And I, I read a really, really great book a number of years ago. Writer's Digest used to put out these how to write guides. And one of them was on how to write historical fiction. And Persia Woolley wrote it. And she said that as a writer of historical fiction, you should do all of your research and never put more than 30% of it in a book. That 70% of that research was just going to be for you so that you would know how to set the scene. Because as she very wisely observed, if a reader wants to know more, they'll go buy a nonfiction book. And if a reader doesn't want to know more and you've just forced way too much of it into the book, they're probably going to put the book down because they're not being as entertained. I, I've always thought that that was just such a, a, a brilliant guideline. And I've, I've kind of tried to roughly follow that and make sure I don't go too far down research rabbit holes. Because as much as I love geeking out and obsessing over a topic, it doesn't mean that every reader wants to read about that. So I try to be mindful of that and just give enough to interest a reader and intrigue them and maybe point them in a direction that they might like to explore further on their own. Well, and Google's so easy these days that you can quickly go look up something and spend your own time in a rabbit hole if you really are interested in a particular thing. But also a lot of times those things can seem like info dumps. If you're reading all about Veronica and Stoker and all this stuff's happening and all of a sudden you devote four pages to something about dinosaurs, people are going to be like, what happened? So I think that's exactly <laughs> right. I mean, you can weave in a little bit of the detail here and there, but really you're telling a story. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if, if it ever gets to the point where you know, this dense wall of information takes somebody away from either the puzzle of the mystery or the relationships between the characters, then, then I failed. You know, then, then I have fallen into that trap of being too self-indulgent and saying, look how smart I am. Look what I know. When, when the reader doesn't need that. The reader doesn't need me to be smart. The reader needs me to be entertaining. But I think it makes sense that that could happen because I think you learn all these cool details and you're like, I want to impart them to everybody. But you have to remember, okay, I can't impart every single one of them. Like you said, I read years ago about one thing. So you just kind of keep it in the back of your mind. And when the time comes, it fits into one of your stories. Yeah, exactly. And I've with the last couple of books, I've started doing author's notes and pointing people in the direction because I, I've started to acknowledge hey, this really crazy thing that you think I probably completely made up for this book, well, it's inspired by this equally crazy and awesome thing that actually happened. And here's where you can find out more information about it. So that for readers who are interested in that, they, they have a place to go. And sometimes I'll you know mention things in my newsletters, or I recently rebooted my blog after years of not posting on it. So those are those are fun things to share and you know kind of give an opportunity for readers to go and find out more if they want to without walloping them over the head with it. I'm a huge fan of author's notes, so I'm very happy when they show up <laughs> at the end of a book. <laughs> I'm that kind of nerd. I love it. I love it. Well, how do you come up with new character names? Obviously, many of the characters in the book are set, but you had a fair number of new people in this book. How do you decide what they're going to be named? You know, usually I will have a, a running list as a name occurs to me, as I run across something, I will make a note of it. And if it just hits me that this is a good character name. In this particular book, I know that there were a couple of characters whose names actually changed because sometimes I'll use a placeholder name. And then as I start to write the book, I'm like, oh, that's not her name. 
you know, clearly she's not a Bettina, she's an Araminta or whatever. And, and so you realize as you develop the personality that it, it's, it's a different name that you need to, to kind of convey who they are. Because, you know, without getting too deeply into nominative determinism, <laughs> there is a lot of time, you know, we tend to think of a Vanessa as having a different quality than a Kim. And so I, I like the characters to reflect that. And sometimes it comes down just to a plain matter of practicality, because I don't want there to be too many characters with the same letter, because I think it's trickier for readers to keep track. When you're trying to introduce new characters to them, if I give you 17 characters whose names start with B, then I haven't done you any favors. I don't want you having to go back time and time again to say, okay, who is this person again? So to me, it's a good idea just to kind of map it out at the beginning and see if I can make sure that it's balanced amongst the characters. I really appreciate that because I think it's really hard where you're reading a book and there's an Emma and an Emily and they sound so similar or James and John and you're like, okay, wait a minute, who's who? So having very distinct names helps a lot for the reader. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that that's always one of my touchstones as a writer is what do I appreciate as a reader? If I'm reading a mystery series, I don't want to know who done it in previous books. Because if I haven't read those yet, I want to be able to go back and read them and, and still be surprised. So when I start writing a book, I might make a few allusions to previous books, but I don't tell you who did it. I don't spoil the mystery. So in case a reader wants to go back and read that book, because they picked up, you know, Veronica in the middle of a series, they can go back and read that and hopefully enjoy it as much as if, as if they were reading the series in order. And I think that's helpful. I've noticed an interesting trend with mystery series in recent times, with newer mystery series. A lot of times these books are being billed as standalones, but they're containing the same characters that were in one prior book, two prior books. And so it's kind of interesting. I'm like, what is making one a standalone and one the next in a mystery? It's kind of curious. That I have no idea. You know, I know that publishers love series. Readers love series. Booksellers love series. Librarians love them. So I'm not sure what the thinking is behind marketing something as a standalone, unless they feel like, you know, some readers would be intimidated at the idea of, oh, I've got 17 books to read by this person. So, you know, let's lure them in quietly and just give them the first one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a weird trend because I agree. Having worked at Murder by the Book for a while and knowing how much people like series and coming in and getting the next one. And so I'm like, okay, there have been several lately that I didn't even know were the second or the third because they were billing it as a standalone. And I'll post or I'll mention it to somebody and they're like, well, you know, that's the second in a series. And I'm like, no, I didn't know that. That is brand new information. I know. And I didn't feel like the book was like, I didn't feel like I leapt into the middle of something. I mean, I felt like I was reading a standalone. But maybe there were references I just didn't pick up on. But I think it's an interesting trend. It is. And we'll have to, we'll have to ask powers that be at a publishing company or two why they're doing that. Exactly. And keep your eye out. Well, I love your covers. We've talked about them before. And I really liked the direction they went with this one. Did you? Oh, yes. I was so delighted. They, they are very, very kind, the art department at Berkeley. The way it starts is my editor will say, OK, it's time to brief the art department. Do you have any any requests? And and they are requests. They are never guarantees, but they are very, very kind about asking me to at least give them some input so that when my editor goes to brief them, you know, give them some ideas about what the book is about or, you know, what they what they should be thinking about when they design the cover. You know, they they ask me for that input and I'm able to say, well, you know, we we haven't had a, a purple book yet. And this feels like a purple book or 
you know, there's, there's this motif, you know, we have diamond stars in the book. So maybe because there's always a falling image on the cover that's repeated a little motif. And so if I can give them an idea of what would be a good, good thing to pull a good image to use for that, they are so lovely about working that in. And so this time I said, could, could I have bones? I'd love some bones. And, you know, she, my editor went and explained to them, you know, this is, this is about fossils. And so the way they tucked in those adorable little ammonites and their dinosaur bones. And I just, I just shrieked when I saw the cover because I thought it was so charming with those little elements in there. I loved it. Once you know that a lot of that is woven into your cover, because I have to say, I worked at Murder by the Book for a while and I loved the colors and I loved the designs but I didn't know to really look in great detail at them till you and I spoke. It's really fun to dissect what's on the, get it, dissect, what's on the front of the cover and then tie it into the story. Yeah, they, what they always do is there's always a significance behind the color. There's always a significance to, um, there'll be a silhouette of, a, of a, a particularly important setting in the book. And th- we always have Veronica, a silhouette of Veronica. And then there will be this, this motif that's, kind of falling and repeated over the cover. And they the way that they manage to come up with things that are just so original and so beautiful every time and are just so exquisitely tied together. I am in awe of the art department. I love them. I, I make no bones. Huh? <laughs> about how much I- We're going to do puns all day long. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's been a really long day. Isn't it? I tell you, you know, it's been the same for me. So I'm enjoying the puns. <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, I, I I adore them and I talk about it a lot. I fangirl over the art department on a regular basis. They're very, very good to me. Berkeley does a phenomenal job with covers. And, you know, the art department will come back with a concept that is miles beyond anything I could have ever come up with because I'm just, you know, kind of throwing out random ideas of different things that they might want to incorporate. And then they go off and they work some incredible magic and produce something that is just extraordinary. And I hyperventilate with gratitude and everybody's happy. Berkeley does do an amazing job with covers. I'm always just so drawn to their books. I mean, I love what they publish, but I really think they also do a stellar job with their covers. They do. They are exceptionally good at all of the elements of packaging, you know, whether it's coming up with a title, because Sometimes they will go with the working title that I've given a book and other times it's like, oh, honey, no, that title is not going to fly. And they will retitle a book when it needs doing. And they are re- they're the ones who titled Killers of a Certain Age. That was not my, that was not my doing. And it's a, it's a really good title. It really is. I wish I could take credit for it and I can't. That was Craig Burke, the vice president of PR, named named our baby. Well, it is a great title. And I think A Sinister Revenge is too. And I think all of the Veronica Speedwell titles tie in with each other well. You know, the funny thing is the first thing that that I, when I was writing the very first Veronica book, I had a working title, which is The Unlikely Adventures of Veronica Speedwell, Volume 1. <laughs> You can absolutely, because you were a bookseller, you know exactly why they wouldn't let me have that title. (laughs) It's way too long. It's way too much of a mouthful. And so, you know, we, we eventually came up with a curious beginning because it was the beginning of Stoker and Veronica's relationship. It was the start of Veronica embarking upon, you know, a new chapter in her life where she becomes a person who falls over dead bodies on a regular basis and has to figure out why. But from there, we kind of proceeded where every book is 
an article, an adjective, and a noun. And so I actually developed a Veronica Speedwell title generator as a joke that I sent to my editor, which is like, okay, circle one from column A and one from column B. And this is how we're going to title the books from now on. Okay. That's hilarious. It's awesome. It actually works. It, it works beautifully. Okay. That's too funny. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm going to be like, okay, how did this one get generated? Oh, Sinister Revenge? Well, any of them. But I, I think that a Sinister Revenge makes perfect sense. You know, I just, I, I had been really wanting to use the word sinister for a while. I love it. It's such a great word. And we hadn't had an occasion to use it yet. And so I thought, oh, this is our chance. This is our chance. And it ties in very well with the storyline. It does. It does. And it's always a, a beautiful thing when you can really settle on a title that, that clicks with what you're trying to do. Yes, because I really don't like when I finish a book and then I look back at the title and I think, why was this named that? So it's nice when they tie together. I mean, I know it's funny, but it happens. And you're like, hmm, okay. My favorite, my favorite, favorite thing in the world is when I'm able to work the title into the dialogue somehow. Yeah. Because if I can do that, oh my God, it's, it's, uh, that's like winning an Olympic gold medal. I, I love that moment so hard. And I don't often do it, but I do. I really, really love it when I do. I like that as a reader as well. Well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? I uh, was able to get my greedy little hands on an early copy of Rachel Hawkins' The Villa. And it's mostly contemporary. It has some flashbacks in it. And she had me at, you remember the, the, the house party that Lord Byron and Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley had in Switzerland, where she came up with the idea for Frankenstein and wrote the book. And it was all this huge, spooky, atmospheric, house party. It is that crossed with Fleetwood Mac, which I think is just, I mean, oh my God, that it, it was extraordinary. I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. And I'm extremely excited. Another thing I just got my greedy little hands on is an advanced copy of Jesse Q. Sutanto's Vera Wong's Unsolicited Advice for Murderers, which I love that so hard. I, she wrote Dial A for aunties. And I love her so much. I think she is hilarious. And so I was super excited to get my hands on uh, something different that she's doing because I was like, oh my God, I've loved the ants so much. And she's doing something else. That's like an embarrassment of riches. That one comes out in March, a week after A Sinister Revenge drops. So I'm super looking forward to reading that. That's on my nightstand right now, getting ready to start it. It just arrived here and I cannot wait to read it. It sounds like so much fun. It's on my nightstand as well. Rexy, great minds, Cindy. Yes, exactly. Well, as always, Deanna, I love chatting with you and I'm so glad you took the time to come on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Cindy. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. 
If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.